with our series, Advent in the Details, and I've been using Matthew as the text by which we explore these details. Now I'm going a little bit beyond the Advent, the arrival of the Christ child, but we're still looking at that phase in his life where he was young and the promise was fledgling in this regard. So our passage this morning is from chapter 2 of Matthew, verses 13 through 18. And when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, if I remember right, this is the only time Jeremiah is actually mentioned in the New Testament. Not the only time he's quoted, but the only time he's mentioned. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. We need it to transform us, to change us, to give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive what this Christ child would have us know of him, would have us believe of him, would have our our faith strengthened by him. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I'd like to begin. I have this book here. It's a book that we picked up about a legend from northern England. It's called The Lambton Verm, a worm. Um, in Sunday school, we're actually getting ready to talk about the diet of worms. So I really I don't think there's a connection here. Or maybe there is. I don't know. But in this book, it actually details, chronicles, the story of a man named Lambton. And how one day he goes fishing in the River Weir. And he pulls out what looks to be some slug, serpentine type of creature. He throws it in a well, unthinking. And he goes off and he ends up fighting in the Crusades. So this is roughly around the 12th century or so. He goes off fighting in the Crusades. And while he's gone, this little worm, this little slug-like creature, ends up growing into a massive serpent, a huge dragon, while Lampton is away fighting. And the book reads, okay, now it reads kind of in this oldie English type thing, so I'll try to read it. I read it to my kids in a certain voice, and I realize it's hokey and horrible, but I cannot disabuse myself of it now. You know, i got to do it. Okay. But the Varnum got fat and growed and growed and growed an awful size. He'd great big teeth and great big gob and great big goggly eyes. See, you can see him right there. He's quite goggly. And when at neat he crawled about to pick up bits of news, he felt dry upon the road. He'd suck a dozen coos. Those are cows, right? Call them coos. He'd suck a dozen coos. This fearful worm, what often feed on calves, 
and lambs and sheep and swallow little bairns alive. Little bairns are little children when they laid down to sleep. And then the story goes on that Lambton returns from his crusades in Palestine and he ends up slaying this serpent, this worm. He slays it in half. Um, and the village is saved and the bairns, the children, are safe. Now you wonder what in the world does that possibly have to do with our passage this morning. It was not just an excuse to use my silly voice. Talos, you're going like this. I think I actually talked to you about this, and you still don't understand. Um, so, right? so the question, what does it have to do? Well, I think what we see here is in this legend, we see a motif repeating itself. This is not the only legend around in continental Europe or beyond where you have serpents, you have dragons arrayed against human beings, particularly children. It's a common motif, actually, to see serpents of great size and terror addressing children. And if we read our passage today, we'll see that the threat of the serpent, personified by Herod in our passage, is one that comes directly from the history of humankind, beginning at the very beginning with Adam and Eve in the garden. Do you remember that story? we see that Adam and Eve have fallen according to the wiles of the serpent. And God makes a promise. He makes a promise that he will put enmity between the serpent and between the seed of the woman. This is an unexpected enmity. On the contrary, you would think that those who had just sided with the serpent, who had just sided with Satan, would take his place. They would stand on his side in opposition to the Lord. That would be the natural course of events because through Adam and Eve, humanity had just declared its allegiance to the devil. But instead, God in his grace puts enmity in the hearts of some of Eve's offspring so that instead of siding with his enemy, they will be his allies. They will bear enmity toward the serpent. And you notice the first strike the serpent makes, he makes it on children on Cain and Abel. He makes it on the sons of Adam and Eve. The first family. And he is successful. Notice through Cain, he crafts out his line. He crafts out those who will have allegiance to him. And he strikes at Abel, the one who offers faithful worship, the one who has enmity against him. He strikes at him, seeking to extinguish the line of the woman and the promise that goes along with it that there will be one who will crush his head, who will crush the head of the serpent, even as he will crush his heel. And that motif continues to circulate over and over again in Scripture. Time and time again, the serpent rears its head and strikes at the line of promise, seeking to destroy it, to extinguish it, to make that promise of salvation and hope uttered to the first couple, to make it null and void, to be rid of it so that he might be the ruler of this world without opposition and without end. And indeed, that is exactly what we see going on here this morning in our passage about Herod. That is exactly what we see. Herod is described in a similar way to his predecessors. He is described as the epitome of the serpent's will, striking 
at the family of faith. Striking at the one in full climax of God's redemptive history who has actually come to fulfill the promise. He's not the first one to take up this role. As a matter of fact, the text alludes to us that he's being compared to another serpent. To another individual who personifies the evil of Satan. Listen, we have an association here with Egypt. The association we see for Herod here is that he is like Pharaoh who struck at Israel all those years ago when he ordered the massacre of baby infants in order to destroy Moses. Thousands of years earlier. Do you remember that? And think of how Pharaoh is portrayed in Scripture. Think about the mythology that surrounds Pharaoh. Now, I know third graders and beyond have done Egyptian history, right? So you guys are ready for this question. On Pharaoh's crown, there is normally depicted a certain animal. What animal is that? Oh, man, I got a lot of hands here. Um, Okay, let me go with Adele. She's in third grade. It's a snake. Does anybody know why the snake is there? Any guesses? Okay. Ethan, do you want to give it a go? Yes, absolutely. Taos, do you want to weigh in on this too? Yes, right. Both of those things are right. As a matter of fact, Pharaoh was said to receive his power and his authority through his tutelary goddess, right? His patron goddess of lower Egypt called Wedjet, who was a serpent, was a snake. And that was actually exemplified here, right? It was pointed out by the serpent on the front of his crown, the crown typically associated with lower Egypt. They were ultimately combined with upper Egypt as well. But he was to receive his power and his authority through this goddess. This is why Pharaoh could rightfully be called deity and God, because this serpent goddess had passed along her power to him. So when Moses... (coughs) Is born. What we see here is that somebody who is associated with snake and serpent takes aim at he who would be the old covenant mediator, at the one who was promised, who would carry on that promise of saving the line of man. Yes, Gabriel. They did. Some of them did that as well. I was thinking the one on the actual hat itself. But yes, they would often wear objects that were associated with snakes all over their body. That's absolutely right. So in this regard here, what we see is that Pharaoh himself is striking at God's son. Do you remember how Israel is described when he does this? Remember how this Pharaoh, both the Pharaoh that attempts to cast Moses into the waters to his death. So there might not be a deliverer. There might not be a redeemer of Israel out of Egypt so that they would languish in slavery. Or the Pharaoh that were to come that would try to keep them in slavery. Do you remember what God describes him as doing? Who is he oppressing in this regard? It comes from Exodus chapter 4 here. I think I have it up here. It comes from Exodus chapter 4 verses 22 through 23. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you, what you do before Pharaoh, all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If he refuse, if you refuse to let him go, behold, 
I will dispatch your firstborn son. So we see here we have, once again, the serpent personified and arrayed in Pharaoh, striking at Israel, striking first at its redeemer Moses, but then at the entire nation as it seeks to keep them in this way of slavery and death, in that land of death over which he rules. And in the same way, we see Herod is taking up that mantle again. He too is the acting tool of the serpent as he tries to strike at the promised line, at this promised family, as he tries to destroy the Redeemer who is to fulfill the promise to crush the serpent's head. And you wonder, you look, it's late, right? It's untimely what he does. And this reminds us something about Satan. It does. Is that ultimately he has limited knowledge. He is described as roving to and fro around the world or a lion that moves to and fro, roaring. But what he does not know is he did not actually know the identity of the Redeemer under Israel in Egypt. He didn't know it was Moses. Otherwise, he probably would have tried to snuff him out immediately. Somehow he had discerned that the time was near for their redemption from Egypt. And he made his move. It was easy when it was Cain and Abel, right? There were just two guys. But in this sense, he had limited knowledge. And so he acts in whole. And in the same way with Herod, he has limited knowledge. Somehow Satan has ascertained that that Messiah has come. And so he seeks to strike at him through Herod again. And he misses again. According to God's care and concern. Because look, he appears to Joseph in a dream. Notice the name itself. Just notice the name. Can we, can we, we have to, Matthew here is writing for us. He is seeing these connections that scripture makes time and time again. Who is the person that led Israel, his father, and his family into safety in Egypt so that they might not be snuffed out by plague and famine in Canaan? Who's that identity that we see at the end of Genesis? It's Joseph. It's Joseph. And in the same way, we see another Joseph come along. And this time he flees to Egypt for safety. In the same way that his predecessor, Joseph, had taken God's chosen covenant mediator, Jacob, Israel, into Egypt. So we see even as the serpent is attempting to destroy this line of promise. We see that the arrival of the serpent's bane cannot be thwarted. The Lord intervenes graciously as he had time and time again. And he sends Joseph to Egypt. But not without cost here. Because even as this is to fulfill the Lord's prophecy, out of Egypt I called my son. Because indeed, Jesus will come from Egypt as Israel did before, as the fulfillment of that nation, as the fulfillment of the promise of the serpent crusher. Nonetheless, there is still the strike. And notice what Herod does. Notice how he kills those children. And the quote we have here comes from Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 15. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping a loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. You see, Rachel had died on her way to the promised land. When they had arrived, they were moving toward Bethlehem, and she had died actually in a location close to this. 
And as a matter of fact, at Rama, there were significant tragic events that had been associated with this town. Before Israel went into exile, all the captives were arranged. I'm sorry, I mean Judah in the south. All of the captives were arranged and settled in Rama before departing north into their exile. She had become associated with lamentation. Lamentation for a people who had been taken away from the land of God, who could be comforted no more with his presence. And the text tells us something here. Not only is there a fulfillment for Jesus, but it tells us something, that the way the serpent (coughs) strikes brings much grief and much sorrow. That sin has caused heartbreak in our world. We've recalled some of that today. These children are caught up in a strike at Jesus Christ in the same way that Abel was caught up in that strike, that all those infants that Pharaoh had killed those years before were caught up in that strike, that all those faithful followers of Christ had been caught up in that strike when the people went into exile. These children are caught up into it. And for that reason, there is a cause for sorrow and sadness, that that opposition to God's will, both through sin as well as through the serpent, has created an environment in which there is death, in which there is suffering, in which there is sorrow. You see, the Redeemer is going to come out of these confines. He's going to come out of this environment, an environment of angst (coughs) and despair and heartache. So we can rightly say with Jeremiah, who is known as the suffering prophet, the weeping prophet, that sin and its master Satan will bring us to these times of mourning. To bring us to these times where there seems that there is no hope, where it seems that God's promises have faltered and fallen short, as I'm sure these mothers must have felt as their children were taken from them. But I'll remind you that this chapter goes on from Genesis chapter 31. And even in the face of that despair, first for Jeremiah speaking about exile, for us this morning talking about the slaying of these children, he continues to write in verse 31 and following, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, the covenant that they broke, Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The author of Hebrews sees this as fulfilled in Jesus because he says, therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. 
It wasn't the time for this Redeemer to die just yet. There was more that he was to fulfill. There were more strikes that the serpent would make upon him. And there was one final one that would culminate in his death on the cross. But we shouldn't forget that within this passage, within the despair, within the difficulty, within the heartache, that there is hope. Within the very passage that Matthew quotes, he is alluding to that promise that's held within the life of the Savior that goes down to Egypt for a time. That although sorrow and death and sin might reign for a time, that reign is limited. Although the serpent might strike both 2,000 years ago and even today in our lives, that his work is not the final answer. That his strike is not the definitive one. That the serpent's work is not the one that will prevail and win. Instead, it will be this Christ who at his time will lay down his life, not yet, but in his time, and be crushed for our transgressions. That we might have hope, a hope that goes beyond the grave, a hope that is eternal, a hope that even these mothers in this despair could cling to as they awaited their Messiah, a hope that we could cling to in the sorrow of losing loved ones, of our sin, of our afflictions. You see, the serpent's strike has been once and fully defeated in Christ.